couple weeks ago, my wife and I did something that we have never done before. Since we've had been married and had kids, we had never have had a date day. An entire day without kids, dedicated to spending time with one another. And oftentimes, if you're a parent, you know that you need those breaks from your kids. You need it. Even yesterday, while I was here, I, I came and worked on the sermon. I, I like to come up in, on the stage right here and preach the sermon to an empty crowd so I can make sure I know what in the world I'm going to say. Okay? And, but my soon-to-be five-year-old son, Conrad, decided that he wanted to come with me. And so while I'm preparing things, he was running around the church, and he ended up crawling into the, the drum cage behind me. The entire time I was there, he was pounding on the drums, the drum solo. Okay? At times... I, you just need a break. And so my wife and I decided we're going we're gonna to do that. We had a concert lined up in Bloomington, but we decided we were going to just go down south and do some shopping and do some, some eating and just enjoy each other's company. And by 1130 in the morning, we were finished with all that. Uh, <laughs> what, are you, what, are you, what are you supposed to do? I, it just happens so quickly. Without kids, you can be so productive. So we decided to sit and watch a movie in a movie theater all the way through. Okay, something I have not experienced in a long time. But eventually we end up going to this concert. Of course, it was supposed to start at 8. They really started at 9, which is well past our bedtime. And then an hour and a half, two hours later, we're, we're done with the concert. It was, we attended this concert by the, the, the performer was Matt Carney. He's a Christian singer, songwriter. He, he blends into the secular world as well. Had a chance to go and listen to him. And as I was driving home and over the last several weeks, I've had one lyric of his that's been stuck in my mind. And it's this. He said, every word you speak is the air I breathe. Every word you speak is the air I breathe. And I think there are two reasons why that has been rattling around in my brain. One is, I want that to be true, that statement to be true of my life and my walking with Jesus. I know that if I'm trying to do this by myself, if I'm trying to just be the best husband, or if I'm trying to be the best father to my kids, I cannot do it on my own. I literally need to be breathing in and breathing out the words of Jesus every single day. So that's one reason. The second reason is I think this lyric is actually a great summary statement for what we have been looking in in our study through the book of Acts these last few weeks. If you remember in Acts 2, after the day of Pentecost, the disciples begin to meet. They become this movement of people and they devote themselves. They fully devote themselves to the reading of God's Word, the teaching of God's Word, to prayer, to fellowship, to remembering communion. They are literally breathing in and breathing out God's Word. And then as they continue, if you were here last week, you know that Rob preached about Peter and John in chapter 3 of Acts and how as they were going into the temple, they are finding this layman and they heal him. And part of the reason why they do that is they have been with Jesus and they've seen Jesus do that very same thing. And as I've been studying this text and looking at it, I'm just wondering to myself, how did these guys do it? How did, they, how did they walk with Jesus so faithfully amidst all the turmoil and adversity and confusion? Because I know in my own life, I'm up and down. Is that true of you? Up and down, up and down. How are these guys so close to Jesus? They were the real deal. And I think if you ask Peter, he would agree with me that this lyric from Matt Carney, every word you speak is the air I breathe, that is literally what they were doing each and every day. Now, that's not always the easiest. And as we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 4, go ahead and do that. We're going to see the fallout to this healing that Peter and John have done. And we're going to see that it's not always easy to be the kind of people that God wants us to be, to be the 
kind of people that are tools in the hand of a, of a God who wants to change the world. And so let's look first at Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them, Peter and John, in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? I find it interesting because Peter and John are actively preaching in Acts chapter 3. They're preaching to the people. And while they are preaching, the temple guard, the religious elite, they come and interrupt them, and they are hot. The text says that they are greatly annoyed. Other ways that you can translate that is they were worn out. They were tired of this. They were unable to put up anymore with what this early church movement was doing. See, a few months before, they had been there at the day of Pentecost. They had seen all this take place. And they had made a, a, a decision in their own minds that if, if this ever happened again, we're going to put our foot on it. We're not doing this anymore. They are just wearing us out. And so that's exactly what they do. They come in, they interrupt them, they drag them off to, to jail to, to hold them because it's late in the day and they can't get a trial set up quickly enough. And the next morning they bring Peter and John out before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a, a place, a, a meeting of the, the top Jewish leaders, both political and religious, and they met in three concentric half-circles, roughly 70 to 71 people, the who's who of society. You've got the high priest, you have the former high priest, you have all their family, the religious guard, the temple guard, everybody is there. They drag Peter and John before them and they say, by what, what name are you doing this? Who gave you the right? And it's here I think we need to pause, because this is a narrative that takes place that's going from chapter 3 to chapter 4, and it's easy to just read it and to miss part of the context. Anytime we're studying the Bible, we have to remember the, the context, and we, we emphasize that a lot here at New Hope. But the context is more just understanding what we've read before and what's coming after. So it's more than just understanding that Luke is writing this as a second volume to his first gospel of, of Luke, it's Luke and Acts. There's more going on here, because... When we sit down and read our Bibles, we know what's going to happen. We can read to the end of chapter 4, and we know how it's all going to turn out. But if you are Peter and John, you have no idea how this is going to turn out. And so we must understand the emotional context. What is going on in the heart and minds of these apostles? And specifically for Peter, specifically for him, I think he knew where this was going, because this was not the first time that he had experienced this. When, he's, when he is arrested, when he is hauled off late in the day, when he's kept in custody and he's brought out before the Sanhedrin the next morning, I, I think he had seen this before. Roughly a year before, depending on how you figure your dates. Remember Peter and the other disciples are with Jesus on the Mount of Olives. It's late in the day. They're praying. And then who shows up? The temple guard, the religious leaders, they interrupt them. They haul Jesus off and as Peter is being hauled off in his, to prepare himself for his own trial, I'm sure his mind is just flooded with the emotions of what happened that night. Remember, that he grabs his sword, cuts off a guy's ear. I'm sure all that is flooding through his head as he's hauled off with John to prison. 
there's, that's not the only thing that's running through his head. See, I think he's also seen this early morning trial before. Remember him? About a year before, he's huddled around a fire, warming himself, trying to keep the glances and the questions of those around him at bay. All the while, Jesus is in an adjacent courtyard being questioned, this rigged trial in the morning. And I'm sure as Peter is being brought from his prison cell to the Sanhedrin, his mind is flooded with the emotions of the multiple times that he denies his relationship with Jesus. See, he's, he's seen this before. He's been here before. He's definitely seen Annas and Caiaphas before. These are the same men that were part of that hasty trial of Jesus. They're ultimately the ones that are responsible for what had happened to Jesus. And this entire time, Peter is thinking, I've seen how this has happened. I know, I know what's going to happen. I've seen it with Jesus. I'm going to die today. This is literally the last opportunity I'm going to have to speak. And so as he's brought out, Peter and John are brought out amongst the people of the Sanhedrin. I can imagine him taking a deep breath in and deep breath out, breathing in the words of Jesus as he begins to speak for what is in his mind the very last time. But look at verse 8. Verse 8 tells us that as Peter is speaking, these aren't even his words. They're not his last words and they're not his. Verse 8, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom, he's always quick to remind, you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, you builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, these aren't Luke's last words, and they're not even his words. The text says that he is filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And if you've been following, tracking through as Theophilus would have between the first volume of Luke and the second volume of Acts, you realize that this is no coincidence. Jesus had actually told them that this kind of thing was going to happen. And he had prepared his disciples. If you look at Luke chapter 12, verse 11 and 12, Jesus is telling them, hey, when they bring you in before the rulers and authorities, don't be anxious, don't be nervous about how you're going to defend yourself, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. Jesus' promise is ringing true here. And so as Peter gets up, he is both explaining how this man was healed, who did the healing, and ultimately who heals men's hearts, this resurrected Jesus. And I think as Peter stands up, knowing that these are probably going to be his last words, as those words finish echoing off the walls of the Sanhedrin, he's convinced that there are, there's one other thing he's going to be hearing. He knows what he's going to hear next. It's the same thing that, the, that Jesus heard a few months before. Crucify him. Crucify him. Get rid of this man. But if you look at the text, that's not what he hears. You notice he actually doesn't hear anything because the members of the Sanhedrin had nothing to say. Look at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. It's here that I have a little bit of pity for the religious leaders because they had stacked the deck. They knew how this trial was going to end. 
But when they bring Peter and John out before the Sanhedrin, there are not two people that show up. There are three, Peter and John and the layman. The layman, remember the layman was the one that had started this whole thing in the first place. The religious leaders begin to question Peter and John like, hey, there's no way that you did this. By what name, by what power? We, we, don't, we don't believe you. But of course, it's hard to ask those questions when the layman that was supposedly healed walks in. The layman walks into the trial. And the entire time that Peter is speaking, the layman is standing. The layman is standing before them the entire time. So the, the religious leaders, they realize we have nothing to say. And so they don't say anything. I also think that they've learned a little bit from their interaction with the disciples and apostles of the past and their time with Jesus. If you remember in John 9, there's this story. And remember, any story in the Bible is not just a story. This is real life. Jesus heals a man born blind. And when the religious leaders find out that this man born blind was, was healed, they come to him and say, hey, were you the one that's born blind? Was it Jesus the one that did this to you? Ex explain yourself. What's going on? The man's like, hey, I don't... I, all I know is I couldn't see, and now I can see. And Jesus was the one that did it. They're like, we can't believe you. I don't, I don't believe you for a second. Let's bring mom and dad out. So they bring his adult parents out. And when the adult parents come out, they say, hey, honor God. Tell us what happened. Is this really your son? Is he really the one that was born blind? And they're like, hey, you don't want to get in trouble here. Uh, he's of age. Ask him. So they bring the blind man, the man born blind, back out. And they say, hey, is it you? And after all these questions, the man born blind says, hey, you keep asking me all these questions. Do you want to be Jesus' disciple too? He throws it back into the face of religious leaders. And so I think that is rolling through the back of their head as they decide, hey, let's not say anything. And so they throw Peter and John out of the Sanhedrin while they figure out how they're going to save face. Peter and John are then brought back in. And the only thing that the religious leaders can say to them is, don't ever talk about that man again. Do not ever say anything about him or we're going to have some real punishment for you. Of course, that's somewhat ironic. I, I can't really imagine that the religious leaders thought that Peter and John were going to be quiet. When have Peter and John ever been quiet about what Jesus has done for them? In chapter 3, they're preaching. When they bring Peter and John up front, Peter, in, in front of the Sanhedrin, Peter is telling them exactly what's happened. And so when they threaten Peter and John this last time, it's interesting that Peter responds. Look in verse 20, or 19 and 20. He says this, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you can be the judge of that. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And I'm thinking to myself, how do you do that? How do you stand before this group of people and say those kinds of words? How do they have the faith? How can they remain that close to Jesus? Because they're not doing this. And what I find interesting is the religious leaders, notice what they point out. It's the same thing that I'm thinking about. These guys are common, uneducated, ordinary men. Common uneducated, ordinary man. How are they the ones that are able to stand in front and say these things? Well, I think we, we get our answer in verse 13. Do you see it there? It's just a brief statement. The religious leaders, it says, recognized that they had been, they being Peter and John, had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. And I think this is actually twofold because the religious leaders have seen during Jesus' earthly ministry, three, three and a half years, that Peter and John had been with them. And they had seen Peter and John walking with him. But then after the day of Pentecost, they had seen Peter and John in this early church movement come together as often as they could, 
reminded themselves, they taught themselves about who Jesus was. They celebrated that time together in fellowship. They remembered what the sacrifice that Jesus had made by taking communion. They prayed to him. This is all in and around the temple. And so, yes, Peter and John were connected with Jesus before Jesus had died, was buried, and resurrected, and left. I think the religious leaders know, knew that Peter and John had remained undeniably and powerfully connected to Jesus as they were working in that early church movement, breathing in and breathing out the words of Jesus. And I think they're at this point a little scared because it's these kind of people, these kind of people that walk with Jesus that, that God uses as tools to change the world. I don't know where you find yourself this morning, but it's probably similar to me where you're, you feel ordinary, ill-equipped, uneducated, common. I feel that all the time. I went to Indiana University and got a finance degree. That doesn't help me a whole lot when I'm working with 5th through 12th grade students trying to disciple them about who Jesus is. It's not. You probably feel the same way in your situation. You're thinking, I, I don't have that special calling. I don't feel equipped. I don't know how I'm actually able to do any of this. But I think the same things that we're feeling every day are the same things that the disciples felt. Remember, most of these guys were just fishermen. I think they didn't have their doubts when they woke up. But see, for those disciples, for Peter and John, for me and for you, when we breathe in and breathe out God's word, when we spend time being quiet, when we talk to him, when we allow the Holy Spirit, I mean, really allow to lay our own crown down and give him permission to control, when we really surrender to the Holy Spirit to allow him to reveal Christ to us and form Christ in us, that's when ordinary people like you and like me become tools in God's hand to change the world. And I'm sure you're thinking, hey, that's, that's fine, Ryan, but you don't really know my story. You don't realize how difficult I have it. I would, say, I would say to you, you're right. But when I read of God's story, every single chapter, every single person in there, common, uneducated, there's nothing special but God takes them and uses them. My mind goes to Joseph. Remember this, the youngest son, the scrawny, cocky little boy. He wears this coat, and he gets on the wrong side of his brother's anger. He gets thrown into a pit. He gets sold in to slavery. He's falsely accused, ends up in prison. And yet it's in that prison that he walks with this God every single day, and God uses him to change the world. I think about David. Not the king, not, not King David. I'm talking about David when he's the harp player, when he's the shepherd out in the fields. His older brothers are off at war, and Dad says, hey, go ahead and take them lunch. And as David goes to see them, he hears this Philistine yell these, these insults about the God that he worships. And then David begins to walk with his God, continues to walk with his God down to a little brook to get five smooth stones, and God uses this little boy to change the world. I don't know where you are. I, you may still be thinking, hey, Ryan, you don't understand my story. I'm not Joseph. I'm not David. I'm not Peter, and I'm not John. And I would say, you're right. I'm not either. But the same God that they worshiped, the same God that they walked with, is the very same God that we worship, and it's the very same God that we walk with. It's not about us. It's about the God we worship. It's about the God we walk with. So my question to you this morning is, are you walking with him? 
I mean really walking with Him. I'm not talking about the skipping from one Sunday morning to the next. It's really, really easy to do. I'm talking about when you woke up this morning, did you spend time with Him? Did you thank Him for the blessing of this day to be able to come and worship in this place? Did you talk to Him this morning or did you wait for a Sunday morning with other people? Are you walking with Him? Did you talk to Him last night? At the end of the day, do you get before Him and do you tell Him how thankful you are for the provision He's given, for the protection, His grace and mercy every single day? Are you really walking with Him? Because the God we worship is a God of love that wants to walk with us. So let it be said of us that we are people that walk with Him every single day. Amen? Amen.